0: It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts.
2: Yes, indeedy, and a pleasant good afternoon. Welcome to this Wednesday edition of Lifeline. Uh, would this technically be the Ides of... November, 15th of November. I'll have to check into that. Any event, it is the 15th of November. And uh, pleased to have you along for another edition of the program. We are, of course, here each Monday through Friday addressing issues that impact your life and your world. Quick reminder, tomorrow we won't be here. Well, more accurately put, I won't be here. Well, actually, I will be here on the radio. We'll just be at a different location. Tomorrow we're going to be holding a very special panel On race relations from a biblical perspective, we have invited four well-known Bay Area pastors to join us, including Brian Lortitz from Abundant Life Christian Fellowship in Mountain View, Pastor Flavio Carvajalo, who will join us from um, El Cerrito. We have um, Jesse Gustand, of course. Will be uh, be with us and our host, Pastor Gary Morterra, from Faith Fellowship. Our broadcast will be live tomorrow night, five p.m. at Faith Fellowship Church in San Leandro. So, hey, try to get off work a little bit early and come on down. You'll find complete details at the KFAX website at kfax.com. As together we wrestle through this very timely and critical issue tomorrow a special 2-hour live on location panel on the topic of race relations and the church here on Lifeline. The death toll in the Northern California shooting rampage in Red Bluff now stands at 6 including the gunman. Tehama County Assistant Sheriff Phil Johnson today indicated that all the fatalities are adults, none are children. One of the 10 wounded is a 6-year-old boy, however, shot yesterday at an elementary school. He remains hospitalized in critical condition. Johnson said investigators today found the body of the shooter's wife under the floor of their Rancho Tehama Reserve residence late yesterday evening, bringing the death toll till 6. Johnson said that she had been shot several times and believes that perhaps that's what started the random shooting rampage by 43-year-old Kevin Neal. Of course, on the heels of this event, as much as we saw it shortly after the Las Vegas shooting, in fact, any time there's been uh, an act of violence of this sort, there is typically once again a call for greater degrees of legislation, more laws on the books, et cetera, et cetera, as if to somehow suggest that the books that contain laws already are not serving us very well. Maybe deeper still, the subtle suggestion that somehow we're going to legislate our way into morality. Maybe we can just have Congress meet and decide how we all ought to behave and pass a law saying that if you don't conform with this behavior, you get fined or sent to jail or something. There has long been debate as to whether or not we could successfully legislate our way into moral behavior. I suppose at the end of the day, we do need some laws in order for civil society to be civil, That said, are we off the mark here? Are we missing something? To provide some insights, we're joined now by Dr. William Briggs. He is a senior contributor to the STEAM. He has his Ph.D. from Cornell University, studies in the philosophy of science, the use of muses of uncertainty, the corruption of science, and one of my personal favorites, the uselessness of most predictions. And Dr. Briggs, a delight and an honor to have you join us on the program today.
3: My pleasure. Thanks for having
2: me. You have recently opined inside of steam.org this question of whether or not we can somehow legislate our way into morality. Certainly every time we see a mass shooting of some sort, there are car eyes for that very thing. We've not been quite successful at every turn. uh, But I have to wonder whether or not maybe we're missing a major point here. Maybe, in fact, the demand for greater legislation is not just a way to ease our conscience.
3: Well, uh, that's part of it. I mean, what 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 triggered this for me, anyway, was Stephen King, the novelist, who uh, I say, you know, he, he makes his living thinking up clever ways of killing and maiming people and and frightening them. He said, "Well, enough with all this praying; it's uh, time to start legislating." And so, you know, murder, as most people are probably aware, is already illegal uh... in every state and this law was not enough to dissuade uh... the the guys any of these mass shooters so just having the law is not enough uh... to make somebody moral you need you need more than that and i don't think that uh... king recognizes that and and neither do other people neither do quite a lot of progressives they somehow think that with enough education and and with enough time we will able will be able to pass just the right laws uh that'll bring us to uh, human perfection or you know as close as that we can get to it but what all these people forget is that particularly in a democracy uh democracies go insane from time to time there's no better way of putting it i mean everybody knows Uh, In our democracy, a hundred years ago or so, we wrote, we passed a law, we we created legislation to amend the very constitution of our government to ban alcohol. Now, what were people thinking at the time? Uh, Why was it uh, right? uh, You know, a few years before this, that people were allowed to drink alcohol, and suddenly it was discovered, no. It's wrong to drink alcohol, so we'll change the very fabric of the government and say alcohol is no longer to be tolerated. And this was a law passed. This was a legislation passed. All of a sudden, it became immoral to drink. Uh, But, you know, Congress got thirsty uh, a few years later, and they passed another law saying, well, now it's okay.
2: And of course, the irony of that is not only did Congress have to pass the law, two thirds of the states had to ratify that adjustment to the united states constitution and If it weren't for the passage of the Volstead Act, um I suppose things like organized crime and the mafia would have never come into being
3: well, I don't know about that. there's always going to be crime i mean we can't we can't legislate our way out of crime. that's the whole point, but they might not have been so uh you know emboldened they, they you know they passed a law at which nobody wanted to follow, or very few people wanted to follow. So everybody wanted to break this law. And that led to all of the, uh, you know, the difficulties. But, you know, there's other examples too. For, you know, 200 years, for two and a half centuries, we knew that marriage was between a man and a woman. And we passed lots of laws. Our country passed lots of laws with this in mind. And then all of a sudden, one day, it was discovered, no, that's wrong. It's not be, it's between anybody the government says. Right now it's currently just two people, they're considering more than two people. Well, who's to say? If the government is the ultimate arbiter of what's right and what's wrong, then anything is possible. All you need is a majority.
2: Well, I think at the end of the day, Dr. Briggs, we would all agree, hopefully, most of us would agree, that taking of another life is wrong and there ought to be legislation against that. I think it's not so much the matter of the legislation, it's the...
3: i I I want to interrupt. I'm terribly sorry about this, but that's not quite right. There's been many governments who have legally, they passed their own laws to take the lives of their own citizens. And this occurred, of course, I give the example of the Soviet Union. They thought those who were counter-revolutionary, by whatever terms they meant by that, were liable to be killed. You know, they trucked them off into Treblinka and other camps and shot them, killed them all in the name of the state, and it was legal,
2: perfectly legal. Well, of course so, yeah, absolutely, no, to the historical point, you're you're right on. The point that I'm trying to make is that, while I think a majority of us, under normal circumstances without a political agenda, would agree that the preservation of life is critical and important, and you can pass all the laws in an effort to preserve that, or to uphold that, but at the end of the day, isn't mankind going to decide for for itself what it's going to do, and they're going to meter out whatever kind of behavior they want? I mean, let's say we go to the point of saying not only are we going to make uh, the, the possession of a gun illegal, but we will, uh, we're will we going to confiscate every single gun in the country, and there. We'll make sure nobody kills anybody, and, of course, then they'll turn around and just aim cars at you, as the guy did in Las Vegas, I mean, in, in New York a few weeks ago.
3: Or knives, or pressure cooker bombs, or exactly. whatever else they can make to hand. You know, what is it, I ask, that makes a gun safe in the hands of a government employee, but unsafe in the hands of a civilian? Why are government employees to be trusted so much more than citizens? this fundamentally to me doesn 't make any sense
2: well, certainly, if you pose that I was question to anyone in winning...
3: Michigan, where everybody had guns, everybody we, even the, the first day of deer season was a school holiday. I would tell this to people, no one believes it, but teachers brought their guns to school. I brought knives to school when I was a uh, young nobody killed anybody nobody shot anybody the mindset was different this is the problem it's a spiritual crisis that we're in now that we didn't have then so you can't pass a law to ban or stop spiritual crises that's just not going to
2: happen well and at the end of the day you've touched on a very critical point here and that is it's not the presence of the weapons themselves that creates the problem. It's what we do with them. And listen, even to your question regarding what makes us think that somehow guns in the hands of of uh, the government are safe, but in the hands of its citizenry are not safe. Well, if you'd pose that question to the average citizen of of uh, Germany in the 1930s, it'd be interesting to see what answer you came up with, particularly by the time the war was over in 1945. If you've just joined us, Dr. William Briggs is with us today. We are reasoning through uh, what seems to be uh, the, the, uh, the theme of The moment every time we have on the heels of one of these distasteful, horrific, um, bud curdling events where somebody decides to turn a weapon on somebody, uh, and that weapon, as Dr. Briggs so aptly points out, could be something as harmless as a pressure cooker or a mode of transportation or a gun in the case of the shooting to the north of us a couple of days ago, and now we want to suddenly once again reunite to the cry for greater legislation. But are we missing the point here in that at the core, it's not the weapons themselves. It's what we choose to do with them. And Anything at the end of the day can be a weapon. I can use a fire extinguisher to put out your house from burning down or bang you over the head with it and kill you. Let's take a time out. We're going to come back to more of this discussion. I also want to talk about the mainstream media's role in all of this when we come back to more of our conversation with Dr. William Briggs as this edition of Lifeline continues. 517 on the clock. Let's quickly head over to the KFAX Traffic Center. Get a look at your Wednesday ride home. Brian Dean has got the latest. Brian.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
2: The cry to impose greater legislation on the heels of a massive crime sprees or take off on its own, there. Uh, as our guest today, Dr. William. Briggs has pointed out. But I have to wonder, Dr. Briggs, if there's also a disingenuous angle, perhaps, to all of this. Um, we oftentimes hear the cries for greater gun control, as in the, this example, coming from Hollywood. Ironically, the same Hollywood that's built the last 40 years on lascivious living, wanton sex, and extreme violence. And now they seem to be shocked at such things as sexual abuse and gun violence.
3: Yeah. That's uh well the, uh, the the hypocrisy of Hollywood knows no bounds. But you're quite right to bring up the media. What what's sort of amusing is what you'll hear uh unfortunately we're hearing it too often, but what you'll hear from the media after one of these uh incidents is they'll say there's uh we must condemn gun violence. We must pass legislation to condemn gun violence. They call it gun violence but i i live in uh, manhattan here and a couple of weeks back we had a guy uh rent a truck drive down a bike path on the west side highway and killed eight people uh but you didn't hear then uh, to have any legislation to ban truck violence we didn't talk about rental truck violence or nor nor do we talk about uh, vehicle violence when uh, these attacks occur in europe for some reason guns are singled out as a unique form of weaponry when, of course, you know, the vast, vast majority of gun uses are perfectly, uh, you know, harmless, or at least uh, to humans, maybe not to animals. Many people hunt, but uh, they're, they're put to good uses. But uh, they, they, it's the language that they use, as if the guns themselves are responsible for the crimes and not the people and somehow, if you could remove guns, you could remove the inclination of people to murder. But we know that this is not the case. As we talked about in the previous segment, anything can be used as a weapon. I and mean, if somebody is in a bloody minded mood, uh, they're going to implement whatever they can get their hands on. It's not that guns are somehow special in any way. Uh, except if they were only existing in the hands of the government alone. In that case, they can be somewhat scary.
2: How much of this, in your opinion, Dr. Briggs, do you think comes from a major shift in morality, Moral teaching, and that can happen at multiple levels, in the home, uh, at the institution level, in, you know, at the scholastic level, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, do, do you think part of it is a shift that we've seen? Certainly we've seen a major shift since the disappearance of the Hayes Code in the implementation of extreme violence, sex, et cetera, within Hollywood and entertainment. We teach our kids, hey, if you want to join the Army, you know, spend eight hours a night playing, uh, I don't know, Call of Duty. And uh, then we're shocked when later on they pick up weapons— because they get mad. Haven't we taught multiple generations here that the key to settling disputes is violence?
3: We've exactly taught them that. And at the hands of, uh, at the hands of uh, you know either mercenaries or vigilantes uh, or at the hands of the government. But you're exactly right. It's education. The, the education has almost reached a, a level of propaganda. Like I say, I live in New York City, and uh, my, I raised my kids here, but I myself grew up in northern Michigan, and one day I brought them back with me and we went into a hunting store in which there were hundreds and hundreds of guns on sale. And they were walking through these aisles just cowering in fear as if somehow the guns themselves were going to fall off of the shelves and to start attacking them. And, you know, gun violence as if the guns are responsible yet again. And you you have to – and part of that is because I think uh, in an, almost a, in a strange way because so many more people live in cities now – they're unconnected with any uh... you know familiarity with uh... with guns and their uses and they don't know how to think about them and all they see like you say are these hollywood movies and tv shows where everything is put to an ill use and they have no other frame of reference and so this is very natural to them to condemn these tools because they don't know anything else about them so that they somehow think if we legislate just the proper amount of legislation, and then all these ills will be solved. But of course, we cannot cure mankind's fallen nature by passing the right
2: number of laws. And, and therein lies the key. Banning man's depraved nature is, is, is certainly never going to happen. And I think, uh, certainly to my knowledge, without exception, every one of these cases, as we look into the background of the individuals involved, we either find cases of extreme depravity in behavior, we certainly find cases of mental illness often. Oftentimes, uh, look at the recent shootings that took place in Sutherland Springs. The guy up here in Northern California just a couple of days ago, who's out on bail, 160 grand, his mother will never see again, for what? For an act of violence. So the irony is the markers, the signs are there. We're just failing as a society to connect all the dots and as it seems to be so often these days, we try to find what appears to be an easy solution we think we can live with. Well, if you ban the guns, that'll create an environment that will allow us to all hold hands, sing kumbaya, and violence will be eradicated from the face of the earth. But therein, Dr. the I think the real depravity, and that is the degree to which we seem to have um, engaged in this delusional thinking.
3: There's a fundamental disparity. There are those of us uh... who know that we have a, a nature that is corrupted, that is fallen, that can't be fixed—at least not by human hands, not in any great way. That that this this stain, if you like, will always be with us, no matter what we do. But then there's the other half of society, or probably now even greater than half, that believes that with enough time, with enough tinkering, either through uh, educational means, uh, through government programs, even through, you won't believe it, but through surgery or through medical means or through drugging, we could reach a state at which we could leave behind our sort of barbarian past, and we could enter this enlightened state at which, uh, you know, mankind will be in one harmony, Uh, and that's just not going to happen. That's the the basic problem. This crisis, like I say, is a spiritual crisis, and we're not going to solve it by any other means but resorting to the spiritual. We're not going to solve it by having yet another educational program.
2: And, you know, as I alluded to from the beginning, we certainly need laws to help civil society remain civil. But at the end of the day, I think most of us would agree that locks are most effective at keeping the honest people out. So for everybody else, what do you do? I think we need to begin to face up to the realization that, as Dr. Briggs so aptly pointed out, this is at the core human nature, it is sin nature, it is fallen nature, and it is a spiritual problem that demands spiritual answers. You're not going to throw a course or two together uh, to encourage people on how to behave better any more than there's talk. Now, suddenly, amazingly, Washington, D.C. has discovered that there's—now, wait for it—that there is— sexual harassment going on in Washington, D.C. And I heard Nancy Pelosi the other day say we ought to start sensitivity training classes. Yeah, let's get on that immediately, shall we? I find it interesting how 30 years ago, 20 years ago, when we were all raising questions about the behavior of then-president-elect Bill Clinton, "Eh, I don't know, pshaw, pshaw, no big deal, it's all great, it's all fine. Now suddenly... This has been turnaround, and it's no longer apparently fair play. Amazing. Dr. William Briggs, again, senior contributor to The Stream. You can read his insights there at stream.org, including his most recent pondering the question, can we legislate our way to perfection? I think we've come to the conclusion. I think not. 530 from KFAX as we thank Dr. Briggs for being with us. Let's thank uh, Brian Dean for giving us the latest look at traffic here. Brian, what's going on out there?
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
2: And so there you have it. Welcome back to the program, 535, here on the Wednesday edition of Lifeline. We have been doing battle on this issue for many, many, many years, certainly on this program. And it it suddenly dawned on me that our 28th anniversary came and went about a week ago. And uh, we'll probably wait to the big 3-0. If I last that long, <laughs> but in any event, I, it, during the course of the last 28 years, we have been dealing with this topic off and on for a good 20 of them, and that is the issue of, call it what you want, uh, assisted suicide, death with dignity, which is a misnomer if I ever heard one, because there's nothing undignified about death. It's it's a part of life. It's a part of the process, and of course, more recently, as you are probably aware, California passed its own doctor-assisted suicide law that I am fearful will open up floodgates. The very profession that is charged with the responsibility of protecting and preserving life has now been given the keys to take life. Joining me with some insights and a word on a very special event coming up, this weekend, Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee, Brian has also served as a commissioner in California on the on aging, and of course um, brings some unique insights uh, as a result to this very topic. And Brian, as you and I have opined on this program together many times, um, it, it is it is unsettling to think. That a family can arbitrarily say, you know what? It's just, it's just about time. Mom's been hanging around for too long. This is getting expensive. Just can't we get this over with? And of course, now with so-called doctor-assisted suicide, the capacity to do just that is now here. That's right,
0: Greg. And, and first, let me congratulate you on the 28 years. Uh, your your work is very much appreciated by many, even those outside of the Bay Area. But I know the Bay Area appreciates. Uh, the light that you cast on very important issues. And it was in KFax Studios that you and I, years ago, when Derek Humphrey first came to California, that I debated Derek and you were a moderator right there in KFax Studios. And we got him to admit that in the killing of his first wife, and it's in his book, that's the reason we were able to draw it out, that he was the decision maker. And that's what you have to realize when you talk about assisted suicide, you know, the natural thing for any one of us, and we should listen to that conscience, if someone comes up to you and says, you know, I'm just very depressed, I don't feel like living anymore, I can't face my life, maybe it is because of a diagnosis, but whatever that, that is motivating them, that person, you or I, or that assistant, they have to make a decision. And that decision is, well, let's, let's talk about it. Maybe there's something better we can get to. And that's really the conscientious and the proper way to do it. But now that assisted suicide is legalized, it's the assistant that's the actual decision maker. And in the Kfax studios, it was 20-plus years ago, Derek Humphrey admitted that. He's the father of the Hemlock Society. It is the assistant. What this is is a third party that is involved in a lethal action. It's not true suicide, because suicide means you're alone and you do it completely to yourself. There is no assistant. So this is a bit of a misnomer, but more to the point, this is someone crying out for help. That's what the desire for suicide is. And we know this, that if you're given a terminal diagnosis in the five stages of grief, we know that you're gonna go through emotional challenges. And the individual who wrote that Dr. Kubler-Ross back in 1969, a Swiss psychiatrist, she wrote that out so that psychologists could know and could help people when they're dealing with those emotions. But if you change the law and say, no, as long as they ask to be killed, you can be involved in their killing. That changes everything. And as you said, Craig, especially in families, because it is often family members, but often family members benefit. Often family members can be heirs. But what's even worse is now medicine, instead of curing and caring, because historically for 3,000 years, medical professionals have sworn that they would always care, that they would attempt to cure, but if you couldn't cure, you would at least comfort and care, but never kill a patient. So now that's what we're looking at is the inversion of medicine. So medicine is now a deadly practice and this is extremely dangerous for all of us. There's a conference coming up, and we're a co-sponsor. California Pro-Life Council is a co-sponsor. But so is Biola, and it's at the Biola campus this coming weekend. And if you're able to get down to Biola, it's a great university. But this is the caring, not killing conference, because there's aspects of this you have to be aware of. Well, and I of think we, we all
2: need to, be, yes. to kind of be, uh, how should I say, uh, on uh, extra alert. Um, on heightened awareness here, that as you point out, those that may be around us, and you know, as as an aging baby boomer, um, you know, yeah. you begin to contemplate your own eventual demise. Uh, as as believers, of course, we're confident in. Uh, in where we will eventually wind up, but at that process to there, you're going to have questions. You're going to have concerns, you know. Uh, Is it going to be a long, painful, drawn-out process like my mother went through, 14 years of cancer, or uh, Mm -hmm. will I go to bed one night and just not wake up the next day the way my father did? Uh, At the end of the day, I think ultimately we'd like to be able to know that when our time comes and only God knows and controls that, that we will be made comfortable, and that we can have the certainty that there will be no hidden agendas. And sadly, we live in a day and an age where money, either access to it or the motivation not to spend it, um, can be a driving force in making some pretty critical moral decisions that should never be influenced by money, whether it's a relative hoping to get their hands on it, or quite frankly, a government that says, Your usefulness and time has run out. We cannot justify spending more time on keeping you alive, and so we are going to pull the plug. And in my mind, doctor-assisted suicide is just one or two notches away from the government controlling that outright. And if you don't think I'm right, wait 20 years and then send me a note and let me know.
0: Yeah, well, it's ironic you bring that up because literally it's these laws, these things are not happening in a vacuum, and literally today as we speak, Obamacare is still the law of the land, and those who follow that debate know that it actually is a tax. It's a tax regarding the health care that you get. And so that's being debated today in the tax bill, whether or not this should continue. Obamacare has dramatically affected the delivery of health insurance and the delivery of medical care. And it isn't just assisted suicide, what's happening now because of the change in medical ethics, it's become not uncommon. I get calls all the time of people who are basically abandoned, medical abandonment, where they're no longer given food and water. I've been involved in numerous cases of this. Again, I wish it was less common. It's becoming more and more common and Sometimes family members are talked into it, that this is a good thing. And it basically, historically, this would have been called medical neglect. And, and unfortunately, because of the change in medical ethics, this is becoming very common. And if you don't see it, if you don't insist in caring for your loved ones, if you're not visiting, if you have a loved one in a long-term care facility and think that, well, they'll just take care of everything, you need to be involved, as you were with your mom. You need to be involved with your loved ones you need to make sure that they are getting the proper care because otherwise that facility, it, a lot of times it is Medicaid. the minimal, They minimus care and treatment. Those CNAs, I know many of them. They're wonderful people, but they're overworked. And they often don't give enough fluids. They often don't have time to change the diapers, the chucks. And medical neglect, institutional medic, medical neglects become very common. Now, if it can be to the point of death, that's become even more common so it isn't just the poison itself it is medicine saying look we don't have to care about people anymore it's better off that this person be dead they may not be even terminal as in the case of terry they're just too much work it's just too hard and that attitude has infected our culture with the cost savings of, a oh, quote, Obamacare, which has really taxed the American health care system, we're living a changed culture. So this, this is a, a wonderful, if you can get to the workshop, uh, it's down at Biola. I know it's a drive for a lot of folks. There will be, um, there will be other information available online. You can see online, Caring Not Killing. Go to killing at wordpress.com. But if you just do caringnotkilling, it should bring me there, too. And you can see the lineup of speakers. I speak very briefly. There's quite a few professional folks, uh, of nurses and doctors. If you're a nurse, you can get continuing education units for your nursing uh, degree. And so that's, that's something that's available because it's often the nurses that do have to care and the nurses that are doing the real work in caring for these people, and they see what's happening. So we want them equipped, and we want you as a, as a believer that cares about your family, we want you equipped and ready for this battle because it's a battle that's coming. And it's not just going to be on the radio. It's going to be talked about at your kitchen table.
2: And again, information available on the web at Caring and Not Killing. Just Google that and you'll find it there. Brian, real quickly before I let you go, I know it wasn't part of our planned topic tonight, but a a quick comment. Supreme Court hearing the case here in California related to the state forcing pro-life pregnancy centers across the state to essentially advertise for Planned Parenthood. Your thoughts?
1: It's very exciting.
0: I don't know if you saw our press release, but uh, just last week, Uh, There was a state house. We were involved in the state case. The federal case went to the Ninth Circuit, and they ruled against us. But we intentionally were involved in a state case in state court, and in that state court, the Superior Court of Riverside County, they found against the bill and found against Javier Becerra because it was forcing speech. In California, the free speech right is in the California Constitution, and under California law is often... Is often interpreted as being stronger than the first, the federal, uh, the federal First Amendment right. What that did, that victory, created a need for the Supreme Court to decide because you've got these varying decisions. And the reason there's a Supreme Court, very few cases actually are granted by the Supreme Court. I don't know if folks realize they they only grant cert, they only listen to a few cases, and they let the lower, the lower cases stand. If that had happened in California, the Ninth Circuit would have upheld that law. But now, because there's different opinions, they've taken it up. They decided that on Monday, and we're very excited about that, I think, with with Neil Gorsuch there. uh, We've got a very good shot because he basically, in many ways, is another Scalia. The decision-maker is going to be Tony Kennedy, Anthony Kennedy out of Sacramento. I've actually... Uh, I was here when he was here at one point, before he was appointed to the court. He's been kind of a disappointment. We'll see what happens, though. I think he's going to be the one that's going to have to decide this. And historically, he's kind of, he's been on both sides at times. I think he will land with us, but they're going to hear that case in this session. And we're going to know by the end of this Supreme Court session, whether or not the forced speech of promoting abortion in a in a pro life pregnancy center whether that's going to have to
2: continue All right, we appreciate the update. We'll continue to follow that story as it makes its way through the Supreme Court. There is Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee. Brian, as always, we appreciate your time and your insights. Get a chance to visit with Brian again soon once we know a little bit more uh, progress as to exactly what date it will be heard and uh, all of that. All right, we're here at 540. Uh, Do we want to just dovetail here, Jarrell, for expediency's sake? We've got a special guest on the line here, and and maybe that would be the, uh, the quickest and fastest way to do this we'll just there's no traffic out there if anything major right if you're sitting in traffic you know there's a traffic ahead you've sat in it before and you'll probably sit in it again tomorrow so uh let's get a quick look at traffic then we'll meet our next guest the latest right now with brian dean brian
0: and now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
2: Oh, such uh, such formality here this evening. Thank you, Jarrell. All right, back to the conversation here. 5.50 on the clock here on the Wednesday edition of Lifeline. Uh, my next guest is a gentleman whose name may not be a household one to you, but his movies certainly are. Everything from a series of the Muppet films to Disney's live-action retelling of Beauty and the Beast. All fans out there of USA Network's Monk, myself included, raise your hand. He is the creator behind that. And his most recent is going to be a film that I think released coming up on Friday is ideally in time for the holiday season. When a lot of us kind of struggle with bouts of depression, it's anniversaries of the loss of loved ones, and and sometimes not always the, the greatest time of the year, sadly enough, and we begin to feel sorry for ourselves. Well, if you're in that kind of mood, I've got a movie for you that'll lift you right out of that like that. This new film is simply called Wonder and it is produced by David Homerman and David of course is the founder and co-owner of Mandeville Films and Television and David thanks so much for taking some time to be with us. My pleasure. This is a great film. I've had a chance to see the trailer and I can't wait till it's released to theaters uh, this coming Friday. A film that is based on a best-selling book of the same title tell us what got you excited about this potential project
1: uh, well we were my partner and I were having lunch with uh, an agent here in Hollywood and he was telling us about a book that he had read that he thought uh, that we might like and uh he described it to us and we said sure we'd love to read it for whatever reason we both read it the night he got it to us and sometimes it can take two or three weeks for us to get to a book but whatever compelled us to read that night we both did without even knowing the other was reading it and I don't know we thought uh we both called each other the next morning and said this is a movie we have to make um the story of of Augie and uh the beautiful way the book was written it uh we just felt like this was a story that had to be told
2: and, and it's a story certainly as as viewers will find out this Friday that I think at a level touches a chord or maybe a nerve in all of us, whether we were on the the receiving end of the bullying because we didn't fight and it was quite you know fit in we were kind of the standout kid for whatever funny reason we talked funny, we looked funny, whatever uh or we were on the end metering out the abuse um either side, I think from our childhood is is going to be profoundly touched by the message in this film. Uh, without giving away all of the, the storyline here, uh, David, tell us a bit about the story of August or Augie Pullman.
1: Well, Augie's a 12-year-old boy who has treacher Collins syndrome, which is something akin to what you saw in The Elephant Man or Mask. It's a facial uh, deformity of sorts and uh which they call actually facial differences. And uh his he has been homeschooled, he's had twenty seven surgeries to help him hear, to help him eat, to help him breathe, to help him um just uh look somewhat normal, even though I wouldn't say he is. And his parents decide to enroll him in school for the first time in the fifth grade. And the story is really about that decision, how it affects the family and how it affects all his friends and those around him and what he has to endure. Uh, through the course of this year of going to a regular school
2: and we know of course how cruel at times 11 and 12 year olds can be almost as cruel as their counterparts called adults Um, the the young man who plays Augie in the film Jacob Tremblay where did you find him
1: uh, we had seen, uh, a film, uh, that he did called Room, and he, I, I believe he was nominated for an Academy Award for that performance, and, uh, we saw that. We went out to others, we were even looking at uh, whether or not there were you know kids out there who would want to audition um, who may have you know some kind of a uh, facial difference even and uh, Jacob just turned out to be the very best actor for the film that we could find, and uh, he was an extraordinary kid. His parents are f- fantastic, and uh, he was clearly the first choice that we had all along.
2: So in that regard, he, he really delivered for you, and of course, uh, you've got two other outstanding experienced actors in the film. Uh, there's, there are a few things that Julia Roberts is in that I uh, would say I wouldn't go back and see twice, and, and Owen Wilson on his own is brilliant. You really ended up having a nice, well-rounded cast, didn't you?
1: We did, and everybody wanted to do it. It's a it's a great story, actually. Julie and I did uh, Pretty Woman years and years ago in 1990. So this is the first movie we have done together since then. And uh, she is the one who picked up the phone, having read the book, And called me and said, I want to be in this movie, and I want to play Augie's mother. And it took us five years between the time she called and the time we made it. And she stayed with us the whole time and then cleared her schedule so that she was able to make the film for us.
2: Wow. Uh, that certainly shows that, that in Hollywood. <laughs> and, and that, that, that I think, as you're pointing to, David, also really goes to the heart of the impact of not just the book, but the storyline, the entire premise. And what of my remark in terms of the timing of this heading into the holidays? As I say, a lot of people kind of get depressed this time of the year. They feel sorry for themselves for whatever the reason might be. I think it's kind of hard to feel sorry for yourself when you walk out of such an uplifting film as Wonder.
1: Yes, you will. You I mean, I hope that people walk out happy, exhilarated and 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 I hope they walk out with a better understanding of compassion and tolerance and and that, you know, God made us in 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 all the same and that we should respect each other and look beyond uh our our outward differences and You know, accept people for who they are.
2: The film, as we mentioned, will debut in theaters starting this Friday. And if you want to get a little bit of a sneak preview of what we've been talking about with um, executive producer David Hoberman, you can do so by going to wonder.movie. There's a couple of sample uh, trailers there you can take a look at. You can also follow it on Facebook at Wonder the Movie. David, we are delighted that you've had some time to spend with us tonight talking about your new film. Uh, Kudos to you. Great time timing, great story. And uh, as you point out, these actors really delivered. So we're looking forward to the debut this uh, coming Friday.
1: Thank you so much. I'm so happy to have been able to talk to you all.
2: Take care now. There is David Hoberman, David, the founder and co-owner of Mandeville Films and Television. And of course, the new release of Wonder this uh, opening this Friday at theaters across the Bay Area. You can get details on the web by going to wonder.movie. That's wonder.movie. And uh, boy, check out the uh, the bio on uh, David Hoberman and uh, his uh, co-owner and co-executive producer, Todd Lieberman. The number of family-friendly films that these guys have produced is staggering. Really good stuff. All right. Traffic out there is a little staggering, too, you say? Let's find out if that's true, at least where you are. We get a look at traffic right now. 5.59 in a nanosecond here or there.